0: Scuba Obsessed the weekly podcast we talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed episode 341 is recorded live September 7th 2017. Welcome back to Scoob Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan where we are starting to enter the, that crisp time of the year, the fall here in the Great Lakes. Joining me this week, we have Kevin Ailes. How you doing today, Kevin?
1: I'm doing most excellent here, and it's good to be here. And how about yourself?
0: I am doing great. just nothing quite like this time of year. It's, it's actually, I think, one of my favorite times of the year, uh, you know, the, su- the summer can get too warm. The winter can get too cold. But I, I call this good sleeping and working weather when you uh... – Well, and
1: and this is also a time when we start to see the visibility improve a little bit. You know, we've already had those uh, peak algae blooms. Now we're getting a little bit cooler nights. So, uh, you know, we will see some moderate visibility improve in the inland waters here. So mm-hmm. no reason not to keep diving. Get out there and go. Yeah,
0: and And we've talked about it before and maybe we'll do a segment a little bit later on, but if you want to keep diving like you should all year round, uh, you got to get into the water and dive now, and if you keep diving every week and address what is making you cold or not comfortable, then before you know it, you'll be into that time of year where we have ice, the water starts to get hard, and you'll still be diving and being, being quite toasty.
1: Yeah, and there is technique, which we will uh, you know, discuss as the season gets a little bit closer, where you can do ice dives in a wetsuit. It's not real comfortable. <laughs> it's not for everyone. I, I'm going to do it this year. I, I bought it. Well, I I picked up a, a semi dry. I'm quite fond of, and I'm going to do an ice dive in that baby. Oh yeah. Hell yeah.
0: So well, there you go. I'd like to thank everybody's in the chat room, and we are trying the Discord chat room, and it looks like it's it's passing our tests. So for at least the text portion of the chat room, when we're doing the live broadcasts. This will be the Avenue We Go Discord, and if you want to get a link to it, go to our website, com. click on the Contact Us page, scroll down below, underneath the form, and we have links to all our, our social media, and one of them is going to be Discord. Uh, we may do an article once we get this ironed down a little bit more, where it will give some additional details or put it on the page. but for now you just go there and you can click and you can participate during the show. And we have people from all over. We have New York city. We have uh Kalamazoo, Michigan, at least a couple. We have Pittsburgh, Melbourne, Australia is probably the farthest away this, this week listening live, uh, TKD Derek down there. So, uh, thank you everybody who's in the chat room. first, uh, article that we actually have up in the queue, uh, has to do with a scuba diver having some problems with getting air. Um, He bought a compressor. It produced carbon monoxide at unsafe levels. He says, I was floored. I was breathing that air. My partner at times was breathing it. And her 18-year-old son says, Tim, uh, I'm thinking that's Matheson, son, technical advisor to the New Zealand Underwater Association, Association described the air compressor as a loaded gun. Mr. Matheson's uh, worst fear we realized when he shelled out $1,600 for a professional air quality investigation on his uh, Nardi Compressor Atlantic 100 electric dive compressor machine he already paid $5,200 to buy just before Christmas in 2014. The keen recreational diver told Fairgo he had bought it for convenience but became concerned when the air tasted oily. He sort of got used to it, Mr. Matheson said. Sometimes you come... You come up and you don't feel that well, but whether it's that or the boat rocking or whatever, Mr. Matheson made multiple attempts to return the dive compressor to New Zealand agent for the Italian manufacturer, but the agent, Ben Valings, determined that the customer was to blame. He obviously caused a lot of the problems, Mr. Valings told Fairgo. Mr. Matheson admits that for some months he used a type of oil that was suitable for dive compressors, but not the oil recommended by the manufacturer. He also installed an air meter on top of the switch to keep a uh, track of, uh, oh, an hour meter, I said air meter, an hour meter on top of the switch keep track of maintenance requirements. Both voided his warranty, and the agent said it made him believe the owner was at fault for the bad air. Mr. Valings was unmoved by the report showing carbon monoxide was being made above the New Zealand standards. This too he blamed on the customer. I think he ruined the machine over time, not being taken care of, he said. Technical advisors to New Zealand Underwater Association reviewed the report and shared its concerns. An electrical compressor should not be producing carbon monoxide. Carbon monoxide is found in the exhaust fumes, so there's a major, major problem with it, said the advisor, Steve Bishop. It's producing unbreathable air, he said. Nardi strongly denies that and maintains the machines are safe, that thousands exist, and no one has died. Nardi also disclosed that Mithler-Mathen's machine was made in 2014 under an old standard where carbon monoxide that permitted levels three times higher than today's standard and that the levels being produced by his machine were well below that original standard. The company said the compressor manufactured after the updates comply with the new standards and they offered Mr. Matheson's compressor uh, offered to fix Mr. Matheson's compressor a few months ago. That offer comprising of a new oil and filter came after Mr. Matheson's repeated insistence that something was seriously wrong. It was also made at least two years after the modifications of standards were introduced. The agent, Ben Vollings, denies liability, but after Fairgo became involved, he refunded the original sales price of the compressor to defend Nardi's reputation. He also paid Tim Matheson half the cost of technical report for a settlement of $6,000. Mr. Vollings told Fairgo he sold about 10 of the electric compressors and received no complaints about them. He had not contacted the owner to check their air qualities for carbon monoxide. The New Zealand Underwater Association urged divers to meet the commercial standards for air fills by taking three of these steps: ordering a test of their compressors every three months; they are in use at a cost of less than two hundred dollars; becoming, certif- uh, becoming certified air fillers if they are doing home fills, at a similar one-off cost; checking that dive shops, uh, checking the dive shops they use are up to date with those requirements so i mean i think it's i think if you're putting your own air uh you need to take responsibility for it so i certainly agree with the uh, uh that you should get some sort of training uh not so much because anybody can hook up uh your you know your tank to a compressor and have it filled but you've got to understand all the variables around it and why things are done the way they are uh you know an electric yeah ear- i mean
1: there's there's some training involved in operating an air compressor and you can't just pick one up and think you're an expert on it there plus it looks like this gentleman decided to use a type of oil not recommended for this compressor anyway he's really fortunate to get any kind of settlement at all
0: well exactly anytime you modify manufacturer's equipment and we're not just talking about opening it up or repairing it yourself you're you've modified it you've when you've you know, they go through a lot of requirements. Uh, I'm not sure what c- type of certifications that compressor had, but I'm guessing being made in Italy, you know, they're following a lot of European standards, and you just don't, you know, even if you're the manufacturer and you've got a guy who knows what he's doing, you just can't add something to that compressor and still maintain all your certifications. You have to go through a process. You have it uh, revalidated. They have their version of what we would call underwriter's laboratory over there, and they're certainly going to be interested in, in checking it out. Um So you certainly don't want to do that.
1: And he definitely said, "You know, have have the air quality monitored on it." There, no, I mean, he really should have, you know, tested the air before he even started using it. Uh, You know, I mean, he's actually quite fortunate that he only was.
0: I think we may have lost you, Kevin. Until we get Kevin back, I uh, I have to agree. It's hello, you there?
1: So you get to depth. I, we, we didn't. We didn't hear
0: oh. anything from you. <laughs> you you you've been gone for about okay. forty seconds. Uh, I, I think oh. the last spot that we heard from you was you saying that uh, he was lucky and that he should have it. And I'm I'm guessing you were going in and saying you have it tested.
1: Yeah, he's he's fortunate that yeah. I just closed a couple of windows here. He's uh, fortunate in that he only was coming up with a bad taste in his mouth. He's fortunate he was coming up at all. Uh, I really don't know too much about the effects of breathing carbon monoxide under pressure, but I do know that breathing uh, carbon dioxide under pressure, you do experience the negative effects of that much faster. You know, at you know, as the atmospheres go up from you going down, the effects do impact you much, much, much more rapidly. Yeah. So, and and
0: and to answer your question on the carbon monoxide versus carbon dioxide is that on the surface you know cuz the, the, the carbon dioxide has uh, uh two oxygen atoms carbon monoxide has one so in the case of that it is exponentially worse for you than carbon dioxide it, it bonds to your hemoglobin and it doesn't release so where carbon dioxide it, it, you is is not something you you want to be doing especially under pressure but carbon monoxide can be very fatal very quickly
1: uh. Yeah, just just as anyone who's had their uh, nitrox certification knows, you know, when it comes to uh, dealing with how the body uh, uh, tolerates the stuff under pressure, you know, we're all talking about, about partial pressures. You know, we we know like that a you know partial pressure of oxygen at 1.6 can make you have seizures and it, and can kill you. So you know these things, you know, that's why you know breathing nitrogen, which we do on the surface all the time, gives us no problem at all. But then we breathe it under pressure. and you know, our body absorbs it, and now we we get the bends and different things going going wrong with our body from that. Uh, any of these different gases, uh, which our body ends up absorbing under pressure, you're going to have a lot. You know, all kinds of negative effects on it. Some have been tested. Some have not been tested. So he's, he's very fortunate. All he had was some orientation and a bad taste in his mouth. He's lucky. Up at all. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It says when too much carbon monoxide is in the air. And this is according to the Mayo Clinic. Your body replaces the oxygen in your red blood cells with carbon monoxide. This can lead to serious tissue damage and even death. And they say carbon monoxide is colorless, odorless, tasteless gas produced by burning gas, wood, propane, charcoal, or other fuel. So usually what the, the if I was a dive compressor manufacturer, uh, especially an electric compressor, there's going to be two possible sources for that carbon monoxide to get in there. One is that your intake gas is you you've got a you've got some combustion happening in the area near the compressor and it's drawing in that carbon monoxide the other is that you've got a hydrocarbon somewhere in the system which you know they're they're instantly going to blame it on you not using their recommended oil and that that oil in the process of those cylinders running so and and somebody may say that well why did that oil it's an approved air compressor oil for uh, different compressors. Why didn't it work? Well, it has to do with the engineering of the particular compressor. You know, oil you use for your nail gun compressor that, you know, is going to go up to maybe 180 uh, uh, PSI is going to be vastly different than uh, a compressor that's being used for diving gas going up to three, 4,000 uh, PSI. And then also you've going to have different, uh, diving compressor manufacturers. Of how many stages is it going to, do, what's the cylinder size, uh, the cycles per second that those cylinders are running at. So oil that may work for one dive manufacturer's compressor may not be up to the standards another one is. And this could be the result. So he was just lucky that everything was, was in that. And then also, uh, at the time of the manufacturer, according to this article, the compressor, the the levels that the compressor was producing was what was legal at the time of manufacture, not at the time when the air was tested. So, uh, I, you know, when you take on producing your own air, uh, you got to keep up on stuff like that. You, you should check and, and see what the conditions are. And, and to me, the warning sign, anytime you can taste anything in air, uh, that's, you know, you you stop doing that gas and you have tests done
1: no doubt no doubt uh, i well i think you're supposed to have a test to like every you know i'm not sure about shops but i know they have standards have been tested i sure it's like at least every six months if not every three months
0: yeah it, it's uh it's it's so many hours and so much time and it's it's usually whichever happens first kind of like how you're supposed to change your your engine oil uh you're, you're supposed to change it and i i've i i
1: and, well, I certainly hope they're doing a better job with their, with their air compressors than I do with my engine oil. <laughs> <So>.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and, and, find out, and it probably varies per country, per location, but, uh, I think it's every three months is what they recommend for, for commercial operations. The challenge would be is, uh, that, you know, if you have bought a compressor because you thought you're going to save yourself on air fills, this is where it's, it's not working for you. Or it comes in handy because we do have, uh, people in the dive club who have their own compressors. And where it's nice is that, you know, the dive shops typically in our area are not open on Sunday. So you've got three or four tanks and you go and do a, a, a good Saturday's dive. And then somebody calls you up and says, Hey, let's, let's go Sunday. You may not have any, uh, any access to fresh tanks. So either you're, you're bumming tanks off your buddies or if you've got your own, you can, you can do refill. And we've also seen where some of the dive club members they've they've got uh, gas powered compressors, and that makes it nice when you go into some remote locations where you can't quickly get back to a spot to have your tanks filled.
1: Yeah, but when you start looking at the cost of maintaining your own compressor, um, you know, like Darren said, it's really not something. You're far better off going to the dive shop. But the dive shops are not making any money at all when they're charging you for those five, six, seven dollar, eight dollar fills. Uh, when you look at what goes into their filters, into their oil, into the, the air testing, the purchase of the air, of the compressor, uh, you know, they're making – they're losing money. Basically, they're filling your tanks because it's the responsibility of a dive shop to do that. And also, they're hoping when you come in to fill your tanks, you're going to, you know, buy something else or, you know, drop off your regulators to get rebuilt or need some kind of other service there. So, you know. You don't save anything by running your own compressor. You know, some of us put them together for different reasons. You know, I'm putting one together uh, because I run a rebreather, and I end up using a lot less air than most folks do. So it's just, you know, kind of silly for me getting my little rebreather tanks filled all the time. So, uh, you know, you know, I only use 400 PSI per dive. So it's a little bit different for me. But most of the circuit scuba divers, it's just not worth the hassle.
0: And then this next article out of The Guardian. Shipwreck investigated as cause for the Sussex Coast toxic plume. Investigators are trying to find a source of last Sunday's mysterious chemical plume on the Sussex Coast. They're looking to possible emissions from disturbed shipwrecks in the channel. Almost a week after the plume caused 150 people to seek medical treatment, prompting the closure of the Burlington Gap Beach, the source of the gas is still baffling experts. Maritime and Coastal Agency MCA, which is leading the inquiry, said it was considering theories including possible missions from disturbed wrecks on the seabed. One possible source is a wreck of the SS Mira, a British oil tanker that hit a mine almost 100 years ago during the First World War. It went down exactly the same spot where the possible plume was picked up by satellite imagery 5 miles or 8 kilometers off Burlington Gap just hours before Sunday's incidents. NEODAS, a facility from the UK Natural Environment Research Center that Works with the Plymouth Marine Laboratory published the images and the possible plume picked up that morning. If the plume was in the water at the time, it could have reached shore by about 4.30 p.m. when beachgoers first reported streaming eyes, but it was already in the air it's unlikely to have been the source according to Met Office wind data. It advises the investigation that easterly wind direction would have pushed any airborne plume at that point down the channel. Ben Taylor, a remote sensing scientist at Plymouth Marine Laboratory who picked up the potential plume in the satellite image, said it could have been caused by disturbance to the wreck, but he now thinks it's unlikely to be the source of the Sunday's incident. He told Guardian, one remaining thin possibility is the plume of something was released from the wreck and carried on the tide to the southeast beach head, then released into the air and was blown on shore. But he cautioned such a scenario would have required a massive release of substance from the wreck of the Mira, unlikely after 100 years at the bottom of the sea. Taylor said My current best guess is the wreck of the SS Mira may have partially collapsed, and when it ha- had settled differently in the seabed, the current is picking up the sediment. This can be seen in the water. The plume is moving in the right direction for the tidal current, but to verify we need someone who knew the wreck to dive on it and see if it's changed. He stressed that probably a coincidence a satellite picked up the disturbance of the wreck hours before the chemical plume, but the Coast Guard confirmed that it was examining records of shipwrecks as part of the investigation of the incident, as well as satellite images published by Neodos. He said, part of the investigation, we are considering a number of possibilities, such as discharges from a vessel, previously unreported lost cargo, and the emissions from known shipwrecks. And they go on and just basically rehash the same thing over and over. But uh, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, Blame the shipwreck.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, it, it looks like the satellite imagery is showing the plume coming forward where they believe the shipwreck is. I don't yeah. know why it would be that difficult to, you know, I, I don't. they're not saying how, they, do they see how deep it is. I mean, get a diver out there and take a look. You know, I'm sure you've got, um, you know, commercial divers in the area that they could send out to do this. Uh, you know, if they have to, send a, you know, Recreational divers out, you know. For these kind of things, of course, commercial divers should always be your first choice. Um, they may not be available for it, and they should be.
0: Yeah. So it's a three thousand seven hundred ton armed tanker. And let's see if I can get this to load. Of course, it's not going to load. It's going to pretend to load. It's going to do the little spinny thing that it's accustomed to doing. Well, uh, let's see. Now I got to translate the the website. Did show up um about the wreck depth is 30 meters max 13.4 meters minimum so that's uh perfectly within diving range
1: oh yeah i mean you're talking 90 meters max so you know just just shy of 100 feet deep to 13 meters minimum so well you know if it's only 13 meters minimum that's actually pretty close to the surface you know so now we're talking uh you know what 40 feet now Large commercial tankers will draft close to 40 feet, so it is possible that a uh, you know it was hit by a passing ship. You know, in fact, I'm kind of surprised uh, that it hadn't been you know detonated. Perhaps it's nowhere near a, a shipping lane, but it's very common when you have a, a vessel that comes that far off the uh, the bottom and you know that close to the surface. Very often, the local authorities will take uh, you know measures to make sure that it's not a, a hazard to other vessels going by and detonating
0: it. Yeah, it was. It's it's interesting this uh, particular website. It's called wrecksite.eu, and uh, they've got recent dives on it. They have people who have done posts. The most recent one, uh, they have a, a diver, Jay Lettons, uh, and this was on August 18th. He says, uh, sitting on her starboard side, the decks are vertical, badly corroded. So this wreck. To be taken care with superstructure is gone, but hull recognizable sits under beams, three hundred forty-five feet long. So somebody could do what we did, just do a quick Google search, and they could mm-hmm. contact that diver and you know what? that hey, head on out there. See, if did something change? Because yeah, he's, he's no seen doubt. it within the last week. No uh, doubt. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, so it's certainly possible. I mean, wrecks can be source of some contamination, but. Uh, what's just kind of coincidental is the fact that they've got that plume showing and it lines up almost too perfectly yeah it's it's almost too much of a coincidence
1: well you know you're always going to have naysayers who will look for alternative uh possibilities for what is going on there but yeah when you have the plume coming directly from the coordinates of where the shipwreck is then yeah let's send someone out there take a look uh you know i'm you know if you have people who are going to the hospital due to uh, you know watering eyes and burns and things it's certainly worthwhile to you know get a commercial guy out there and take a look at this thing so yeah. and and i would be surprised what's the what's the date on this article you know that, that may very well have been done by now too
0: oh that was just this, looks like this last week I, I the articles long since gone in my in my feed uh okay. but it was it was fairly recent
1: uh, okay this, this, well I, I wouldn't be surprised if they've already got a uh, you know a commercial outfit going out there to take a look at it. So you know we had that deal here in from uh, the Great Lakes, up in Lake Erie, with the Argo. I believe it was uh, three years ago. The Argo was you know there was a a uh, shipper hunting outfit out of Cleveland area well, was looking for something else uh, out in Lake Erie and stumbled across a shape they recognized as the Argo was a uh, barge that back, I believe, in 1937 went missing. on carrying a uh, cargo of some type of a petroleum distillate. And now it, there was a even a bit of a plume on the surface from this one. And I know that our local EPA and Coast Guard uh, worked very quickly and within, I believe it was within 60 days, uh, put together a plan and had been out there and cleaned it up and took care of the issue, you know, ASAP. So, uh, you know, and that's you in the Great Lakes. I would really be surprised if, uh, you know, they're not addressing this in a similar fashion.
0: And next up we have a a Jefferson high grad, earns a Ph.D. at 26, gets a Fulbright scholarship. And uh, this is all due to her love for scuba diving and biology. Uh, When growing up in Jeffersonville, Avery, Shurer, S-C-H-E-R-E-R, was always surrounded by the ocean, even though she never accompanied her parents or their, on their yearly scuba diving trips around the world, uh, she and her younger brother were left at home. Uh, Her father, an underwater photographer, used a Nikon uh, to capture images created he saw on diving trips, the best pictures, a turtle, black tip reef shark, and eagle ray migration in costa rica decorated the family home and added to her fascination i was intrigued because i knew it had to be exciting they were leaving me at home to do it at 11 years old she earned her scuba diving certification and 15 years later combined a love of biology a love for diving, earning a doctorate in marine biology since she's been three to four years old she had read about uh, the underwater world it's something that she always wanted to do. After getting her scuba certification, she went on trips with her parents, was able to see firsthand the oceans uh, her dad photographed. Where we go diving, she and I would get as close to the reef as possible, her mother said. Uh, and then that love of diving were combined with her other passion, biology. I always loved biology. Uh, uh, she gra- after graduating in 2008, she went to Eastern Kentucky University where she studied biology with a freshwater focus, three study trips abroad, two to Belize and one to Australia while an undergraduate afforded opportunity to study biology, in new environments and a scuba dive. I wasn't going all the way to Australia and not go diving. After graduating in 2012, she bypassed her master's degree, went straight for a doctorate at Texas A&M Corpus Christi. You have to be a little crazy to go back to grad school because it's an intense process. She said it took five years to get through the program. The first years were spent in the classroom. After that, she spent a lot of time on the studies, M-E-S-C, well, MESOCOSM studies, uh, M-E-S-O-C-O-S-M. The idea is you're going to try to create a small environment inside a fish tank, and you do that a lot, and you have the same or similar conditions inside each of them. and lets you manipulate things in a more controlled environment. For research and dissertation, she raised juvenile oysters around different types of predators to learn how the presence of the predators influence how the oyster built its shell. Oysters provide a natural filtration system for bodies of water and erosion protectors, she said. At A lot of times, people are interested in the specifics of what I do, and it's an oyster reef and not a very pretty to look at. They don't realize how exciting it can be and how much is going on there, so it's fun to share with them and have people realize they're interested in this, and they just don't realize it yet. Um, and then she got a, you know, a Fulbright scholarship after earning her doctorate, uh, she's ready for her next big adventure in May. She learned she was awarded the Fulbright Scholarship. Uh, I applied for these, for one of these things thinking it was really awesome to get. I'm sure that I wouldn't, but I'll apply anyway. So she's going to spend nine months studying lionfish and invasive species that eat just about anything under a certain size. We weren't sure what keeps them low in their natural habitat, but there's nothing here that keeps them low, and there are vicarious predators. Uh, it's one of the most negatively influential species we've ever seen. We'll be studying the Oncology, the native species, seeing if we figure out some, uh, ecological things that might make them good invaders. So we're definitely going to do some things with the colors and shapes and things they're naturally attracted to, but there's also trying to see if we can learn things that are beneficial for them as predators or are a problem for them that they would try to avoid seeing if we teach them to respond to these things differently. So hopefully she gets some good luck with these lionfish because we'd certainly like to see them gone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, quite a few folks in Florida are going after them with a passion. But I guess the way that things reproduce, it's, uh, you know, the, the best they can do is keep them at bay. They're, they're never going to eradicate the darn things.
0: Yeah, they, they, they eat so much, they breed so quickly. Um, yeah, you, you just have to hope that whatever is in the environment where they're natively fl- from and where there's a, a natural thing. And we've seen that up, up here in the Great Lakes, is that when the zebra mussels and quaggas came in is that there was nothing that, touched them or ate them, and we're starting to see even some uh, native species of fish start to decide that if they're hungry enough, they'll they'll chow on some of them.
1: Yeah, but, you know, we the, saw when the gobies came here, you know, they basically you know, took the same environment as the uh, our, our, our local perch. And, you know, wrecks which used to be just full of perch uh, now are now just full of gobies. I mean, how, how many perch do we see on the wrecks now? You know, we'll see a couple, but you know nothing yeah. compared to the gobies.
0: No, no, gobies dominate dominator thing, and all the times I've been diving, I've, uh, I was post goby, so I haven't seen any, any perch myself.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I know uh, Rob Knoll is showing some video over to Sass one evening about how the uh, gobies uh, actually, if the mussel shells are crushed up, the gobies will actually go in and, and, and eat the uh, zebra mussels. Uh, but the gobies will eat anything too. You know, if you sit there long enough, the gobies will come and nibble on you too. Yes, so.
0: <laughs> I, I'm convinced they would.
1: Yeah, I mean they're 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 pretty bold. I mean, there's a wreck that I like over off of Pentwater called the Novadock, which is just full of the things. And it's kind of a shame too because the Novadock is in a nice sand bottom, and as long as you don't disturb the gobies, you've got beautiful, you know, 30 foot visibility there regularly, which is nice and only 15 feet of water, but you know, once you once your shadow passes over it, you know you'll see the cloud of gobies go through and how they how they stir it up, and the things will follow you around too. You know, it's almost like they're you know waiting for you to let your guard down to pounce on you or something. I don't know, but um, yeah, they they're a, a weird breed of fish. I'll tell you that.
0: Well, now we're talking about something down there in Alabama, and it's not a hurricane. It's the uh, new venture which is a ship, is being prepped as Alabama's next dive destination. The contract has been signed, sealed, and delivered. That means something this fall or early winter. Alabama will have a new diving destination 20 miles south of Orange Beach. New venture, a 250-foot survey vessel is currently being prepped for deployment and will be towed to a predetermined spot and sunk as soon as the prep work is completed and the weather allows, according to Craig Newton, Alabama Marine Resources Division MRD Artificial Reef Coordinator. Right now they're in the preparation stage and all the tanks have been cleaned. The vessel is free of all hydrocarbons in the form of diesel fuel, oil, lube, hydraulic fluids. Now it's being moved to another shipyard to clean out the insides. That means cleaning out insulation, wiring, glass, wood, generators, and dive train. Or drivetrain. Uh, Newton said New Ventures was once used to perform different types of surveying with big spools that released cable into the water to find possible mineral and oil resources. So a lot of complexity as vessels compared to the cargo ship of a similar size. It has a lot of higher sides than most cargo ships. There's a lot of different uh, levels. It has more decks than a typical ship, so we're excited about it and the dive possibilities. Newton said New Venture will be refueled. or refueled. <laughs> no, they're not. Is going to be reefed 20 miles south of Orange Beach, 120 feet of water. Top of the structure between 50 and 60 feet below the surface. Any deployed reef must have a minimum of 50 feet clearance from the surface. We look at the reef size. We look for coarse sand bottoms that are not too close to adjacent reefs. He said we try to place them in spots that help maintain production potential of the nearby reefs without creating a negative competition interaction among the critters from one reef to the next. Preferred distance of reefs is about 200 meters. When new venture is ready, only the stripped hull of the ship will go to the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico. We've had them cut holes in the sides of the ship to create pass-throughs and add complexity to the structure. This one creates a habitat quality and will start holding fish in the first several months. Maximizing productivity will take several years. There's a lot of substrate, for which I call biomass, corals, uh, bryozoans, uh, sponges, and like that. They'll grow on the side of the ship and create complexity to much uh, smaller level, these organisms will provide some and I can't even read that there uh, rugosity of the shipwrecks the different types of crab shrimps uh, Blennies, gobies and damselfish can seek shelter and they go on and talk about uh, quite a bit but it, yeah, I'm jealous down there, this has got to be like the third ship in just about a year that they've uh, been able to sink
1: Well, you know, they have a very strong diving community along the east coast uh, you know, they're able to, you know, put together these operations. And, you know, it costs a lot of money to get these ships uh, cleaned up and ready to go. I don't know if there's any purchase price involved with the ship or they're just simply donated. But, you know, it's unfortunate we just haven't, you know, had these opportunities in this area. It would really be nice to, uh, you know, put you know, a really fresh, you know, relatively fresh, pristine wreck out there to dive. Uh, it's just not happening out here.
0: No, we need to, and we've got these uh, underwater preserves, and each preserve is allowed at least one shipwreck. There needs to be an association or group that is plopping one down in each of the preserves. You know, work mm-hmm. with the local preserves, find some wrecks that are appropriate, and get it down there because uh, at the local preserve level, it doesn't seem like anybody's been able to get anything, any traction to get them.
1: Well, no, there have been a couple of ships that were put down intentionally, I know the uh, North Shore Tug, which is out of Holland, was one that was put down intentionally back in the mid '90s, and it is a really cool wreck. You know, you go down there and the thing is pretty much completely intact. I mean, from what I've I've done a dive on it and looked like the, uh, oh, the roof of the cabin was, uh you know, the, the pilot house was uh, was coming off. But other than that, I mean, it's a completely intact tugboat, uh, really cool wreck. But then it's it's awfully deep too. I mean. Uh, I think it would have been a little better if it had been put, you know, comfortably within sport depth so it could have been accessed a little bit more. Then you also have up in the, uh, oh, the Alger, Auto, the Alger Underwater Preserve, which is the one outside of Munising, they have the, uh, I think it's the Stephen Selvik, which was another tugboat that was put down, uh, not quite sure. I want to say mid-90s as well, uh, intentionally scuttled out there as, as a dive attraction. Uh, but then, you know, the, the uh, it, it's quite a ways out. You know, I, I'm not sure why they put it so far out, because you know, when you're looking at Munising uh, area, you're you know, you're launching right there from just to the uh, west side of town. But it, it's it's a pretty good haul to get out to the Selvik and where you're at, you're actually out of the, out of the protection. One of the nice things that we like about diving the, the uh, Alger Underwater Preserve is that much of it is in a very protective cove. It's an area which there's going to be quite a bit of blustery. Uh, you know, high winds out there in Lake Superior. Yet, because you're in between Grand Island and the mainland, you know you have so much protection there that you can always get out there and dive the uh, the, the, the Bermuda. You can dive the uh, oh, there's another one. I can't top my head. Uh, we dive it every year up there. Uh, it's right there, almost on the way to the Bermuda. You know, uh, you got the Herman Hatler, which is still a little bit exposed, but not too bad. But yeah, that Selvik is just a long haul out there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing that those wrecks were the pre-preserve system or right about that time because I'm not aware of any wrecks since the preserve system was put in place where uh, uh, they've they've been uh, sunk.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure what group did that, but, yes, the, the North Shore tug out of Holland and the uh, Stephen Selvick, I think it's Stephen, it's something Selvick out of um, Munising area, those were both uh, intentional, intentionally sunk out there. Uh, you know, it, it would be really nice to get something here in sport depth, though, You know, and in, in this area to, uh, you know, because you know, we, we do appreciate the wrecks we have. You know, it's nice mm-hmm. to be able to go out and dive, you know, the iron sides, which is within sport depth. You know, the bottom there is 120. You can reach the top of the boilers around like 90, 95 thereabouts. So, you know, it, it is within sport depth, and there's an awful lot to see there, too. But it is, you know, pretty broken up. You know, the engines are still standing, but most of the wood is down. You know, you got some very impressive prop, prop propellers and rudder there, but uh, you know, it, it is pretty pretty busted up. You know, I'm sure that particularly, really, with the uh, younger copper divers coming in, they would really enjoy going down to see something that's very much intact and you know, very much identifiable. You know, us as veterans, it's you know, we have we think it's pretty cool to go down and be able to identify this you know, broken up ship, you know, okay, yeah, this is a chine, which is a, you know, the vertical sides of a ship. You know, here, here, here we have haws pipe, you know, which is basically the area which the uh, chains come through to, for the anchors, you know. We're able to identify all these different pieces of the ship because we know ship construction. But then, you know, we get the, the new divers come down there and they kind of just see a big, cool, big jumble of, of, of wet wood down there. Don't know what any of it is. It's cool, but yeah, you know, I'm sure it'd be nice if, you know, they'd like to get down there and say, oh, yeah, that's a bow. That's a cabin, you know. I mean, that's a, that's a funnel, you know. This is cool, you know. Yeah. So.
0: Well, I would just like to see the economy in all these ports such that you could sustain a dive shop and a couple charters a little better than what we're currently able to do. Uh, and if you had one wreck, uh, you know, say if every preserve could have a wreck that's between 150 and 250 foot in length and you put it out there at like you said reasonably within support depth you know top section 60 feet maybe bottom uh, you know 100 or so and people could get on it and then that way you don't feel bad about like right now we've been doing this podcast for uh eight years going on eight years here and i'd feel bad about bringing somebody in who doesn't who i don't know already appreciates the type of wrecks we have because it's you'd be in the area you go down if i as as much as i love the havana uh you have to really appreciate what that wreck represents and what it's going to show you uh somebody who's used to seeing bright shiny colorful fish in the tropics and you talked about about a shipwreck and you you show them that right away i mean they they may not appreciate it but when you see something yeah yeah, when you see something that looks like a shipwreck uh you know that's much more interesting and then you then you create that economy and you get them on the second or third dive so if you have a weekend you know one of the one of the wrecks you know being on uh, the Havana or the Rockaway that's that's not bad but if, that's just that's not the only reason you would you come up here
1: yeah I don't it's just uh, you know those wrecks you' mentioned, you know, the Havana and the Rockaway uh, you know those are You know, quite shallow wrecks. I want to say they're like right around 60. You know, I think the Havana's 55 feet, the Rockaway's 65 feet. You know, see, these are wrecks which are pretty battered by the storms and things. You know, as people become more experienced divers and are comfortable going deeper and deeper, you know, we do have better and better wrecks. So the the deeper you get, the more intact you get. Um, You get out, you know, out to like 140 feet, out like where the uh, Thomas Hume is now. Now we're talking outside of sport range to the bottom, but still, you know, the, the you can reach the decks on the humor around 125, so you are still within sport depth. And, you know, you often had great visibility out there. You know, I was out there last. We had 80-foot visibility. You know, I know we had a group out there, and they had about 40-foot visibility. I know some guys out there last week, and the visibility was down to about 15 feet. Uh, you know, still very much identifiable things down there. Uh, but then you, you've got to go deeper, you've got to go further out. You know, we, we do have other things, uh, you know, like up in the, uh, the UP one we mentioned a little bit ago was a Bermuda in a very, very, you know, sheltered place up there by Munising. And now we have a, you know, intact you know, Civil War vintage schooner in only 30 feet of water. I mean, then you know, the, the mast and the rigging is gone. But the hull is completely intact. This is a wreck that if you're qualified, you can do a full wreck penetration. You can drop down on a cargo hold and, and one cargo hold and come out another because it, it, this has a completely intact hull, uh, hull here. You know, and, and that's right there within sport depth. You know, we do have you know, other wrecks around, which are really cool to see within sport depth. Uh, you know, you got the Nova Dock, which is over off the, uh, the uh, Silver Lake Dunes over by Pentwater know, very much intact wreck. Well, it's, it's broken in half, but it's very identifiable, bow and stern. They're only 15 feet of water. Uh, you know, you've got, I don't know, not from Novodok, you've got the Ann Minch, which is kind of hammered and smashed, but really cool. You know, we we're talking a, storm, a ship that went down in 1940, and it's just been beaten and had the snot beat out of it by the storms come through. You can still identify what you're looking at, but it's, it looks like the, the hammer of Thor just beat the snot out of this thing. Uh, I should be a little more reverent because, yes, there were 27 gentlemen that lost their lives on that ship as well. So there's a pretty sad story goes with the Ann Minch. Um, you know, but you know, it is part of our heritage and our history here. So, yeah, I, I do think that the, the newer generation would certainly appreciate seeing things, maybe not as much history to them, but, you know, more identifiable and more intact and possibly more, you know, easier to access to.
0: Well, talking about a couple more Shipwrecks or or reasons to dive Michigan is we have two century-old shipwrecks that have been uh, discovered in Lake Huron. I think these have been known for a little bit of time, but they've made the press again. Uh, On September 1st, uh, two shipwrecks more than a century-old have been found in the waters of Lake Huron. According to marine archaeologists announced Friday, Thunder Bay National Marine Sanctuary officials said they recently confirmed the identities of the wooden freighter Ohio and the steel-hulled seamer Chicktaw. Uh, Researchers from Choctaw? Yeah, Choctaw. Researchers from the Alpena, Michigan based federal sanctuary found what they believe to be the vessel during a May expedition. Officials say the plan further uh, expeditions to the 202 foot long Ohio and 266 foot Choctaw, which they add are well preserved in the upper Great Lakes cold fresh water. They also intend to nominate the shipwrecks for listing in the National Historic. A registrar of historic places uh, they are in more than 200 feet of water off the coast of Michigan's Prestique Isle within the sanctuary's boundaries sanctuary superintendent Jeff Gray said they aren't releasing precise coordinates of the wrecks until researchers have gathered more information but the ultimate goal is to have them up for public diving both are magnificently preserved they're really time capsules sitting there fully intact the Ohio sank in 1894 and the Choctaw in 1915, both in collisions with other vessels. All crew members were rescued from both, but five died uh, from the Ironton. One of the vessels involved in the collision with the Ohio, that schooner, has not been found, which I'm guessing if they found one, then it's got to be in the similar location. Researchers and divers have long sought to locate the Choctaw, considering unique among experts for its straight-back design. Notably, it was the subject of a 2011 search involving professional researchers and high school students. It became a documentary film entitled Project Ship though the Choctaw then proved elusive the crew located two other shipwrecks. And I think that's what I was thinking when I said they had found them before, because I can remember uh, when that project was going on. Thunder Bay estimates that 4,300 square mile sanctuary contains about 200 shipwrecks, with about half discovered, it protects and monitors the wrecks in what was once known as Shipwreck Alley. So they're saying that these were found in the May time frame, at least that one was. Uh,
1: yeah, and it's sounds that these were found uh, very much at the same time. So they, they must be in very close proximity. Yeah.
0: And, you know, considering that one of these is involved in a collision where both wrecks sank, you would think you'd find the other one in the same general area, so...
1: Well, you'd think, but, you know, when ships sink, they don't necessarily, you know, go to the bottom right where the crew abandons ship, too. Uh, you know, it's been shown time and time again, like with the, uh, well, what was the, the the John B. Moran that MSRA found a couple of years ago? You know, that ship the, 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 was abandoned and then actually went to the bottom about two days later. You know, so sometimes these things will drift for a long, long, long ways before they actually, you know, have that permanent loss of buoyancy and, and head for the bottom.
0: Yeah, well, and there's some shipwrecks. I, I believe the Muskegon was one of them uh, out of Indiana, where you know it, it caught fire at the dock. They pushed it out into the lake, and then it floated around for a while, and uh, it was a navigation hazard. So uh, yeah, you know, it, it, there, yeah, yeah. You know, you've got when you've got something that's that's uh, neutrally buoyant. Uh, you know, it it, it can. Go all sorts of places.
1: Yeah, you know, I think we're going to hear a little bit about uh, with these wrecks. Uh, they actually were found by a, another group at a you know about the same time. It sounds as though the NOAA group may have found them first, but before it was actually announced that the NOAA group had found them, uh, a couple of guys, uh, Dan Fountain and Kurt Fosberg, were out there uh, using some modified sporting goods. Uh, using a, a, Garmin, uh, you know, side scan unit, similar to the hummingbirds we talked about. And this thing was, was heavily modified, but, uh, there's a post going on on Facebook quite a bit about these guys, uh, locating these boats in 300 feet of water on a Garmin, you know, which a Garmin is a unit which you can buy, you know, from your local Gander Mountain or, uh, Cabela's that, uh, you know, does a side scan image, um, I've seen the pictures of this, of what they have, that they released a lot of pictures which are going around Facebook, and uh, it's quite impressive what these guys are able to do with a Garmin looking 300 feet deep now. So, um, you we'll we'll probably hear more about about those guys in the future as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, even if you're able to verify that uh, uh, with a Garmin, that's a pretty good result.
1: Uh, Yeah, I mean, it's, using our, you know, smaller size can units, you know, they generally just don't have the power to see that kind of depth, so especially when you start looking through a lot of cold water, you know, the, the thermoclines really do tend to throw these high frequency, low, low power units off. You know, the uh, guys who are looking, you know, for shipwrecks a great deal are using much lower frequencies and they're using uh, tow fish, which are able to get low enough into the thermoclines so they're not, you know, as much affected by them as you are if you're like above looking down into, but it's just really impressive that these guys are using, uh, you know, a hummingbird to—I uh, hummingbird—in this case, a, a Garmin to look that deep. Now, I'm not going to give away all the secrets by any means. Uh, you know that these guys have got some tricks to the trade. I'm sure that they have learned and gleaned. But the uh, post is out there on Facebook, and it's kind of making the circuit about these fellows who, uh, you know, and and they—they they made the post themselves, so it's not like I'm giving away a lot of uh, sacred information here. But uh, you know, Dan Fountain made this post about finding this stuff and has all kinds of good pictures of what they saw on, on their Garmin. Pretty impressive stuff, really. Yeah.
0: Well, this next article that we've got, uh, this one's out of the Telegraph in the UK and it's a 117 year old shipwreck, uh, emerging and being visible on sonar. Uh, it sank on Christmas Eve, 117 years ago, lodged in the sands of, uh, Severn estuary. The remains of the boat were captured by sonar images for the first time. It's sought to be the cargo vessel, the Brunswick, which overturned in deep fog when she ran aground on the sandbanks, sailors who escaped with their lives eventually managed to retrieve the bodies of three men who were in the cabins in the tragedy in 1900. The remains of the men working the engine room at the time were never recovered. The photographs were captured by hydrographic technology. During a survey of the harbor area by the Bristol state-of-the-art vessel, the Is- uh, Ismbard Brunei, I think. Uh, Historic England and the Bristol Port Marine Department are both in agreement that it is likely to be the doomed ship. The 210-foot-long, 30-foot-wide ship matches the dimensions of the Brunswick, which regu- regularly traveled between Bristol and Liverpool. Uh, Emily Hand, who worked in the Marine Department, said, From research, there's a chance it may be the Brunswick, which is the same size and shape, and transited between Liverpool and Bristol, but there's no way of knowing for sure as many other vessels could fit the size and shape of this wreck. The Brunswick was only two years old when it sank was one of the best equipped in the Liverpool line. As she departed to the northern port where the weather conditions were fine, but, she, but as a steel-screw uh, steamer approached a Black Norr Point port's head, thick fog enveloped her. The ship ran aground. The sandbank keeled over and quickly filled with sand and water. Eight men who were on the deck at the time managed to escape, and the lifeboat were unable to save their colleagues below written by one of the sailors revives the moment of tragedy struck. It all happened so quickly that there was no chance for doing anything for the poor pillows below. The ship was right on her beam end and you could stand upright on her side. In fact I walked along her side to get to the little boat and we caught top of the caught hold of the top of the mainstay to hold the small boat in position to look around for those who were missing. We all had to put our heads under the mainstay to get away and it took us all our time to get the boat clear. We all had to put our head oh, uh, uh, the crew returned to the scene a few days later and managed to retrieve the bodies of three men who were in the cabin, but they could not reach the others who were in the engine room. The vessel has been covered by sand for 117 years and support marine team discovered the shifting sand and sediment in the estuary are close to submerging it once more and have made it impossible to fully recover the wreck. So how deep is this? That's what I'm having a hard time figuring out. Well,
1: they're saying that it's on a sandbar, so it probably isn't that deep, but then you have this image from overhead, and, you know, if this is taken by a sonar overhead, this sonar is, you know, perhaps several hundred feet over it, Hard to say. Yeah,
0: because that's that's what's – because my thing is we'll we'll go down to it. Even if it's deep, you can get an ROV down there, but is it buried in the sand and this is like sub-bottom profiling that we're seeing here with the sonar?
1: No, cause, no, because looking at these at the sonar, we're seeing substantial shadows on this here. Um, no, I mean, particularly you, you look along uh, starboard side there. You've got a really strong shadow on that side. Uh, so, you know that this sticks up quite a bit off the bottom. You know, substantially off the bottom. You can see where the uh, sand has drifted up kind of around the uh, stacks towards the stern. As you can see, you know, all the stern is, is rounded there, mm-hmm. and yet you've got a. Uh, it, 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 it you Clearly, it looks to be emerging actually from a sandbar, what yeah. you can see here, because you look you look on the starboard side of it, and you know it's it's much more shallow over there, and yeah, it shows substantial relief on it. You know the uh, you know the, the, this image we're looking at here has actually been zoomed in from a much larger image. Uh, the you know the, the side scan actually came at it from the uh, port side of the ship when it when it took a, took these pictures here. You can tell that by the shadows it has on it
0: yeah i just wonder yeah, why but, they just don't send an rov down or something else down and you'd be able to get a good shot of it and that would help you also yeah. identify
1: same reason they haven't sent divers out to investigate the leaking plume of petroleum over there so they just haven't got around to it i don't know uh, yeah i'm not seeing anything here about the depth of it here um you know Often when people first find a wreck, they don't give away a lot of the details, you know, where it is. And one of the things which would be is the depth of it there, because if the depth was published on it, then other folks would be able to go out and find it, too. Cause, you know, basically, then you just find that particular depth and that particular body of water, and you run your sonar right along there, and you can find that baby on just a regular scan hummingbird. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you'd think, you'd think it was shallow because it ran aground, but then, then you know, very often... You know, when these things do run aground, you know, they're right on the edge of a huge drop-off. You know, we've been seeing a lot of stuff on Facebook lately about, uh, you know, Great Explorers have been has been up around, um, you know, diving the Ganilda up there in, Lake, in Lake, Lake Superior. And that's a wreck which the guy ran aground on a reef that was only three feet below the surface and actually just about brought the boat out of the water. But then when they pulled it off the reef, it settled into 270 feet of water right next to it there. So, you know, we do see time and time again where these sandbars and reefs are. They're right on the edge of massive drop-offs. So, you know, yeah, they're not going to tell us how deep this baby is, at least not yet.
0: Yeah, and it probably depends on what their intent is for it. Are they just hoping that sand covers it up and nobody knows where it's at, or are they going to make this an actual uh, location where sports divers are going to be able to get in and take a look at it?
1: Well, and, you know, and we see this quite a bit in Europe and uh, in Canada, too. Uh, that when you have a wreck which still contains remains, uh, there's much more of a hesitancy to open it up to divers. So, you know, I don't know. this uh, You know, that they're saying that there's potentially three men still in the engine room of this. So, you uh, know, it may not be opened up to diving. We'll have to wait and see on that one.
0: Yeah. But it's nice to see, uh, if you look at that first image and then uh, that second image, um, the sonar scans, it's it's nice to see the resolution they're able to get.
1: Yeah, but, you know, it does say in the article that the uh, you know, sailors who escaped with their lives eventually managed to retrieve the bodies of three men who were in the cabins after the tragedy in 1900. So, I mean, if they're, they're correct on that statement, then the guys who did the recovery, you know, they, they weren't hard hat divers, they were the sailors on the ship. And if you got the sailors on the ship who are going back after their comrades, then... You know they're not diving especially deep for it. Then you know they probably right. only went just you know you know snorkel depth you know no more than 20 feet deep to pull these folks out. Yeah, they so, they were
0: familiar with the ship. They wanted to get them out probably for families and and personal reasons. But I, it sounds like this was much shallower after it went down. And then like you said, I think it probably you know storm wave action whatever brought this to rest a lot deeper than uh, where it was originally.
1: Yeah, well, well, on one of these pictures, it's pretty clear that along the starboard side, it it is on the edge of a significant drop-off. So, you know, who knows how far up that embankment goes or how far up it went back in in 1900, too. I mean, this could have been substantially eroded since that time, too.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, hopefully we'll get some more information. Later on down the road, we'll keep an eye out and see what we can find.
1: Um. I do love these sonar images here. I kind of wish that we could, uh, you know, there's uh, the one which you have overhead has some details to it there. Um, trying to decipher the, the the bar graph on the side that was a scale rating from 5.3 to uh, 15.0. Uh, that might be depth, but you want to bet that's depth. Well, looking at this, yeah, that's going to be depth because when you look at how the sand is laid out there, it's it's not hardness. Yeah, that's depth. So this 5.3 150 is like it's some kind of a scale of depth here is that in it might be meters
0: um, well, you've got what, potentially meters fathoms possibly
1: yeah but you know you're not seeing sonar operating in fathoms i mean you, you, it's it, it's operating in you know and feet and feet and, and feet or or if this gets being europe it could be, but it will be in meters so you know I, i'm i'm going to hazard a guess to say cuz you know it's showing 5.3 at the high point in the red, and we're seeing a little bit, you know, at the top of the cabins there being that red, and I'm betting that where cause it shows 5.3 as opposed to 5.0, that what we're seeing here is the uh, scale of what this image represents. So we're seeing depths here varying from 5.3 meters to 15 meters. That's my guess I'm, I'm putting in here, Uh I'll bet when the ship ran aground, it was on top of the sandbar. Over the years, it settled down a little bit. Currently, the high point is 5.3 meters, you know, so we're looking at about, you know, 18 feet is the high point. That's my guess, Um, although that doesn't quite jive with the perspective we're getting with the sonar, but then this may very well have been uh, scaled down, too. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. From the perspective you get, you think that you're flying well above it, but, you know, Hard to say. Really hard yeah.
0: to say. Yeah, We'll, ju- we'll just keep so, an eye on it, and hopefully somebody, if you know, drop us a line. The show at scubaobsessed.com would certainly like to see if anybody's had a chance to, to find more information out or even actually get a chance to dive on it. And then we have one final article, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's kind of a long form, but uh, it's talking about uh, somebody who's building a submarine, uh, the mini-sub they say only four vessels can reach 3,000 meters, and they're all owned by governments. Stockton Rush is a building a private mini-sub that will be modified with PlayStation controllers, a cockpit tablet straight out of Star Trek. And uh, this is an article that we'll have in the show notes. Uh, thanks to Jim Billings for getting it up. And while I'm thinking of it, hopefully Jim Billings, uh, he's he's in Florida, and he survives this Hurricane Irma. You know, our, our thoughts go out to everybody who did uh hurricane harvey and then you got irma right on after it uh, so hopefully he's able to dodge that one uh, but this uh, the submarine uh, it looks pretty cool so go ahead and uh, take a look at the article and and geek out over it i'm i'm, I'm certainly going to spend some time going through it but uh much too long form for us to cover in any depth i thought mac might might love it he always wants to to get one of these so that will do it for Scuba in the News. Uh, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the air one more season. If you like hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, you're going to love to listen to WRVO Radio. Go to our website, com. Scroll on down to the bottom, and we have links that will show you how to uh, listen in. Did I lose you, Kevin, or are you still hanging in there?
1: No, no, oh, I'm staying here. I'm okay. right here with you, yep.
0: Okay. Well, we had uh, talked a little bit about uh before the show on uh you know trying to get some some action you know we've said that we don't talk about politics on the show, but we're not, normally when I say that is we're limiting the discussions because you're not going to change anybody's mind uh you know politics has become more of a sport than actually any other activity so it doesn't matter what side you're on the other side's not going to listen to you and it's more of a fight just between so if there's any a dialogue, maybe we do some other podcast and we can talk about it. But uh, when it comes to the underwater world and scuba diving and making it accessible, I think we can agree that most people who listen to this program are hoping that, uh, you know, we can protect that environment and encourage uh, the uh, respectful use of this shared resource. So here in Michigan, many of you have probably seen, uh, and I think they've run commercials during events like the super bowl but we've got those uh uh, pure michigan commercials and kevin you were saying that you were you're disappointed that you haven't seen any on scuba diving
1: yeah i mean when you look at the pure michigan campaign you know that they they do a great job of promoting uh you know lighthouses and sunsets and you know camping areas and you know pictured rocks and there are you know a lot of beautiful things to see here in michigan you know, uh, you know, up in the UP, you know, we have the Iron Mountains and uh, all kinds of beautiful landscapes to be seen, but they really don't push much about the shipwrecks. You know, uh, you know, this is one thing that, you know, we as divers come into time and time again that, you know, bumping into folks here locally that live here, you know, been born and raised in Michigan and have no idea about the wrecks out there. And, you know, it's it blows my mind. You know, we see dive shops, you know, really struggling in this area, you know, I mean, yeah, we, we have some, some diehards that have been around for a long, long, long time, you know, but no one's making, a, you know, it, it, it. no one is killing it owning a dive shop, you know, people that own dive shops, they do it for love of the sport, they do it because they want to get other people involved, they do it because they, they want to, uh, you know, work in an area which they enjoy, but, you know, they're not making big money doing this here. You know, when you look at all the costs of, you know, running the compressors we we're talking about earlier or, you know, the liability and everything involved in, in running a business here in Michigan, you know, they're, they're struggling, you know. Uh, you know, we don't have that many dive charters around here. You know, when you look at what they have, uh, you know, down in Florida and on the coasts, you know, they have the support where they're able to, uh, you know, sink these large vessels to make more and more dive attractions. We just don't have that here. You know, we'd really like to see more people get involved with the diving community here. And you know, you like I say, back to the—I just posted some links into the uh, chat room for the, uh, the, the the Pure Michigan website, which is uh, michigan.org. And if you scroll through that, you know, you will see they do mention, uh, you know, snorkeling wrecks up in Alpena area, but that's the only thing I can find about shipwrecks. On the Pure Michigan site, they have they do have a, have a listing of dive shops, but it's extremely incomplete. I mean, you know I would encourage you know, anyone out there to uh, contact your local dive shop if you don't see them on that list. And I did not see any of our local dive shops in you know in the you know Kalamazoo, Michigan area on on that list. Uh, you know need to get some traffic in these places here. But I'd like to encourage our listeners to for one go to the Michigan.org website for the Pure Michigan. They do have a have a contact us uh, link on there, and in the comments, you know, encourage them to add some content regarding scuba diving there. You know, we do have the greatest diveable shipwrecks in the world here. You know, yes, there are there are more intact wrecks over in the Baltic and Black Sea, but those things are so deep they got to send ROVs down. These aren't things which people can actually go out and dive on. You know, I mean, we have, you know, wrecks within sport depth, which still have the mast standing. You know, we have wrecks in snorkeling depth, which, you know, you know Bermuda and Novodoc and others I've mentioned on the podcast with a great deal of history. And some of them are really, really cool to see that you can snorkel. And and don't, you know, we as divers, we kind of, you know, sometimes we'll snicker a little bit at snorkels. But really, you got to look at the snorkels as being the entry drug into scuba diving. You know, when you start snorkeling and seeing cool stuff that way, you're going to want to see deeper, more, you know, more intact stuff. And if it's in the budget, you're going to you're going to find some tanks on your back. That's why I'm here today. So, you know, for starters, please go to the michigan.org website, uh, click on the contact, and give them some suggestions about adding scuba diving to it. Also, I'm going to post some links here to contact Governor Snyder, uh, you know, and I'm not seeing an email link here. Everything I'm seeing for Governor Snyder is actually an actual letter or a uh, phone number here. So, uh, yeah, a little plug for my employer, the post office here. Um, you know, send him a letter. Um, see, I'm posting the uh, links right now into the chat room to contact Governor Snyder. I'm also going to read them off for the people who are uh, listening to a, a downloaded version of the podcast here. Give me just one moment to post that other link here. And paste. There we go. All right. And contact Governor Snyder is uh, Rick Snyder, P.O. Box 30013, Lansing, Michigan, 48909. I'd recommend you putting something in the envelope about the greatest diveable shipwrecks in the world. You know, just give them your opinion as to why you think that we should really showcase the scuba diving industry here in the Great Lakes. Um, you know, we, we haven't really had the support to go out and drop shipwrecks like they do down in Florida in the in the coast, but then we also have far more shipwrecks than they do to begin with, uh, you know, between what we have right off our shores. You know, we have a lot of really cool stuff, but it's not stuff which really, you know, gets the attention of the new divers. So let's, you know, let's, let's plug what we have here. we got a lot of cool stuff. Also, uh, you can call Governor Schneider. I don't know that he's going to pick up, but the uh, number is 517-373-3400. So i uh, going to encourage folks to do this. I'm going to do it myself. I'm also going to get in contact with a couple other podcasts in the area, which we're friendly with, and encourage them to get on the same boat. Um, you know, let's Let's see if we can get some attention for this here. You know, it would be nice if we had a much larger dive community here. You know, we, we could, you know, have the structure here to support more dive charters, more dive shops. Um, you know, we, we can be a great destination. It's just, yeah, the water's cold here, but dry suits have become more affordable. Also, you know, uh, you know people are doing these things in wetsuits. You know, in a good 7-mil wetsuit Divers can get down to, depending upon how hardy you are, you know, 46, 44-degree water. Well, that gets you deep enough to see some really, really cool wrecks. I mean, if you if you can get down to 75 feet, I mean, you can really explore the Cedarville at 75 feet. You can see the hull. You can touch the hull at, like, 45 feet, but you can get down there by the cabins and, you know, see all that overhead environment. Don't go in unless you're qualified, but, and you can see some cool stuff at the Cedarville, that's seventy-five feet, okay, uh, in a wetsuit, okay. Um, actually, I think you can see pretty much all of Cedarville in a wetsuit. It's going to get a little chilly on you, but hey, you know we're from Michigan; we can deal with it, right? So, there's my plug for support our local recs and let's get the and let's get pure Michigan involved with this.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a worthy effort to get the state to to take and do some recognition. I do remember, uh, people who've listened to other podcasts, uh, such as Diver think he used to for the first several years of the, of his program would run the pure Michigan campaigns as if they were paid commercials. And, uh, he did have one that did in the laundry list of things you could do. Uh, it did mention scuba diving, but that was the only one I heard. And it, it wasn't super prominent. It was like, Oh, by the way, you can scuba dive, uh,
1: yeah, I mean, it, it, you know, and the, like I said, the Pure Michigan website does mention, you know, a little bit of, of snorkeling shipwrecks in Thunder Bay, um, but doesn't doesn't say anything about scuba. You know, it, it mm-hmm. does mention some, you know, some of the, of the dive shops, but it's nowhere near a complete list. Um, you know, but yeah, you know, and there's nothing wrong with snorkeling. You know, snorkeling is the gateway drug. It, it 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 does get you hooked on the you know on seeing the wrecks. But uh, you know, we all know that if you want to see you know cool wrecks, the deeper you go, the better they get. So.
0: Well cool. Hopefully. So that would uh, be
1: homework I get.
0: Yeah, you got, you got your homework assignment, so get to it.
1: <laughs> and this will not this will not be graded. Participation is is voluntary. So uh do yeah. it we're doing this on the honor system, folks. <laughs>
0: well let's see, we're to that time of the show where we'll talk about some scuba diving. So Kevin, I see that you did uh put some miles on the vehicle and hit a few different locations this last week. Where did you get what?
1: Well, let's see, um I got to Lake Superior and did a bunch of shore diving up there. That was pretty cool. Um, you know, there's some nice stuff to see up there. You know, there's a uh, there's also a pier up there which I'm going to do my best to get added to the uh, Marquette Underwater Preserve as a uh, dive a dive location. There's a uh, pier right by Big Bay, uh, Michigan, which is about oh, 30, mi- 30 minutes north of Marquette, and it's a uh, you know, you can see it on Google Earth. You can do a really nice short entry there because it's a park. And you can just park your vehicle, walk down to the water, which is only about, you know, 50 feet from the parking lot. And, you know, I, I'm going to have a uh, if, – if I can get the, the site added to the uh, Market Underwater Preserve, I'll have the GPS numbers added to it. If you want to see it for yourself, you know, you go to uh, Google Earth, look up uh, Squaw Beach or Burns Landing – or Big Bay, and it's kind of on the uh, western shore of Big Bay, and, you know, right there just to the west of the, uh, it was a U.S. Army Corps of Engineers-style pier sitting there. Uh, you go just to the west of that, you know, probably, I don't know, 800 to a thousand, eight, about 800 feet west of there, you'll see it right there on the water. You know, it's this massive old industrial pier sitting down there, and you've got all kinds of cool artifacts. So you've got, you know, all kinds of steam engine pieces. You got, uh, you know, power takeoffs and, oh, uh, you know, I haven't seen a complete boiler, but I've seen all kinds of plumbing and stuff down there. And there's um, a fair amount of ceramics, nothing intact. I haven't come across a single intact plate. Um, everything's pretty busted up by the ice and rock action down there. But uh, did a number of dives on that, documenting that a little bit more. There is a, uh, an old coal cart coal car down there like mining cart lots of railroad track and you know it's kind of you know we talked about going out to gilboa and different you know sites around here to dive uh, totally historic version of like gilboa or uh, you know the uh, you know the ross park we dive here in kalamazoo so uh you know right off the shore nice easy shore dive up there in marquette also went to alpena and uh for rec, i'm not going to mention here um I'm not going to encourage our folks to go out there because it's kind of a bit of there's a a little bit of risk involved with that one. But uh, you know, if you if you do get a chance to go to Alpina, there are some really really cool wrecks out there. Um, Lots of historic stuff, stuff in sport range, stuff in snorkeling range, uh, stuff in tech range, all kinds of cool wrecks out there. So, it's kind of a shame we haven't got Jim on tonight. Uh, I understand Jim and Bob Sweeney were up there at the Straits diving a lot of really cool stuff. You know, they mentioned uh, being on the Cedarville up there. They were diving the, they got out to Barney out there off of uh, by Rogers city area. They, I don't think they got to the Ward. I want to say, I'm not sure about the Eber ward. Oh, you know, they they did a number of good wrecks up there. I'm kind of bummed Jim's not here tonight.
0: Yeah. I think I, you know, I know he is out doing the thirsty Thursday dives. So hopefully he'll get a chance to, to get in, here in the next couple weeks and and talk about some diving uh well i did not get wet this last week i did get into a dive shop uh which i consider to be a major accomplishment i i stopped down at wolf's and took a look at some of the bcs i i think mine is uh it was really well used when i got it and then i have put a heck of a lot of use on it and uh just some of the issues i had my last few dives i think are just an indication that it needed to be replaced so i stopped in there today and uh Picked up a BC for me to try out, and so I am planning on getting out into the big lake if it doesn't, if the weather holds up this Sunday. So end my dry streak, extended dry streak, and uh, hopefully get, a, get on to uh, some sort of wreck. There's some talk of maybe getting out to max wreck, because uh, when Jim and I were talking uh, earlier today, we don't think anybody's been out there in the last couple of years. So uh,
1: Yeah, I, I saw... I saw some talk on Facebook about that uh, looking like Sunday. They may be heading out there. Hopefully the weather complies with that.
0: Yeah, yeah, hopefully. So uh, if that works out, uh, hopefully we'll get something. So that's uh, slated for Sunday, and uh, that'll be something we can talk about next week.
1: Yeah. You ready for a shipwreck of the week?
0: Yeah, I am ready for a shipwreck of the week. If you've got one, go for it.
1: Yeah, I have one here. Yeah, sorry, folks. I was kind of slacking off last week here. Um, kind of caught me a little bit surprised, but uh talk about a newer one here. And it looks like the numbers for this one were just recently posted here. We're going to talk about a, a pretty new one uh, called the Pizzazz. The uh, Pizzazz was a uh, cabin cruiser, which uh, local captain, commercial captain, was uh, by the name of Tim Marr, was bringing it across, I believe, from Milwaukee up to northern Michigan here. Let's see if I can find the actual text that discusses it. Uh, Tim Marr is no stranger to shipwrecks. He owns Advanced Scuba, a dive shop in Holland, Michigan, where he teaches diving and operates a charter service that takes divers to explore the numerous shipwrecks lost off the shore of Western Michigan. But Tim never expected to be shipwrecked himself. Uh, I'm taking this information off of michiganshipwrecks.org. This is MSRA's website. Uh, see, he was basically bringing a 1966 Chris Craft Constellation, uh, from its port in Saugatuck, Michigan, to Charlevoix, Michigan. He was out in some waves that were supposed to be one one to three foot, but they were building a little bit higher than they expected. Uh, Unexpectedly, he heard a large crack, and the boat started to lift, and it was taking on water. He had his son with him, and they quickly grabbed life preservers and abandoned ship just as the ship was going down. Now, this is a boat which we, we even have some video of the ship sinking. If you go to, uh, you know, org, look at found wrecks, you'll find the pizzazz on there. And, uh, yeah, we even have a video of this boat in the process of going down. Now, this was not like a commercially built ship. I mean, I mean it, it was built by professionals, but it wasn't built, you know, haul cargoes and, you know, big industrial, heavy, du- heavy, heavy duty built boat here. So this is a boat that even though it went down relatively recently is coming apart pretty fast. You know, uh, there are some pictures here on the MSRA page of uh, the, the boat being dove, shortly went down, and it looks completely intact, and has a name across the stern, but divers have told me that people who dove it recently, you know, the thing is getting pretty laid open now. Uh, still sounds like a very cool wreck, with an awful lot to see, relatively shallow. I want to say it's like 30 feet deep, not especially deep. I think here i last I saw the numbers were posted on this page here no, I'm not seeing the numbers posted here um, I'm going through it kind of surprised I might have to mention them because I know usually these these guys are really good about putting the numbers up on them there no well, I'm not seeing the numbers on the whoops on the page here uh, my apologies folks I do have numbers for it here I will try to locate them before the end of the podcast and get them up but uh, say pretty cool rack, really it's a totally modern one uh, only about thirty feet of water, called Pizzazz. right had out of pound water there. Well, excellent. That's your Shipwreck of, ship of the week there.
0: Well, thank you very
1: much. Um, and my pleasure.
0: And I think it's time where we thank all our Patreon subscribers, uh, everybody who's uh, donated, and it looks like we've we've got ten people currently who are. Uh, on the regular donation plan and that certainly helps us out pays for things like hosting which we have recently completed we have moved from our uh talk shoe hosting to we are completely on uh, podient i think is how it's pronounced it's a service that is uh based out of the uk but it's it's aimed at podcasters and they've got a a nice interface and a tool and we've got everything moved so if you're listening to us on stitcher or itunes uh You're now getting your feed through Podium. You didn't have to really do anything. Uh, A lot of that is done behind the scenes. Uh, But we've also updated some things. So if you go to our website, www.scoobobsessed.com, and uh, you are, say, you're a a first time listener and you want to get subscribed, we've got some links on the right hand side of the menu. You can subscribe through iTunes. We love those five star reviews. You can subscribe to us on Android. Uh, you, you can have email sent to you every any time a new episode is posted. You can listen to it on Google Play, on Stitcher, on TuneIn, uh, and then there's some even some talk of us getting added to the Spotify. Uh, so there's a variety of ways. So just about any way you want to listen, uh, you can you you know go on whatever mobile device you have, download your favorite podcasting app, and uh, very worst case you you can subscribe through uh, our RSS feed, which we have links to. Uh, and we have been, so let me, let me see here. Uh, we'll load, uh, I'm going to load up Podiant and, uh, some of the, some of the things that's nice about the service is that it has, uh, totaled up some of the numbers that we have. I haven't, I didn't have a chance to see it like this, but you're looking and we are on episode 341 and, uh, we average at least 40 episodes a season and uh, some some seasons we've done significantly more than that. Uh, so uh, as I stall, as this page loads, but uh, Kevin, you have any idea since we started recording, we're on our eighth season, how many minutes of audio that we have created?
1: Oh, I could only answer to guess. Uh, let's see, we got 344 episodes, and I think we're averaging about 90 minutes an episode. So, uh, what's that come out to? Uh, about uh, 3,000 minutes.
0: Yeah, we've we've got 22,000 minutes of audio. <laughs>
1: 22,000 minutes of audio.
0: Yep. Okay. Wow. <laughs> is what we've we've done, so in the short time we've been collecting statistics on podium since we changed the feed about a week ago, the amount of uh minutes listened is uh two hundred and forty five thousand minutes in the last week and a half is how wow. much is how much time so we have wasted a lot of uh, i don't know we can, shouldn't call it wasted we've consumed uh mind share uh of people. <laughs> And, and we certainly appreciate it, and it, it, it's humbling to see uh, how much people are are listening to the podcast and the extent we've got, which was evident and and having people all over the world just in the chat room. So we we certainly appreciate you and the effort that uh, uh, people put into to listening and following and contributing and uh, especially our patreon supporters. So Vanessa Homiak is at that dive nitrox level and she gets a shout out every week provided I don't do something brain dead and forget to to mention it. But if you think this show is at least worth a dollar, we could certainly use your support to keep us going. As you see that we uh, continue to expand and try to improve this, this program. And we've got some things coming down that that we got the migration. I spent much of last weekend clicking and updating because I, I broke it into seasons. We had it just, you know, one to whatever. And because we had bonus episodes, it, messed up the system as was migrating. So I had to go an episode at a time and and fix some stuff up and and we'll continue to do that. And then this week I've actually been going through, if you ever spot uh, we're missing images or anything on the website, just drop us a line. We got the contact form uh, and that will get to us. Because I discovered that when uh, we had migrated web hosts, there were some images that didn't make it. So I'm going back and, and adding those back in. So if you went to an old episode and you couldn't see the image that was in the top, you should Go back now and take a look because it should be there. Uh, and if you, lo- you know, always like to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com, uh, forward slash scoob obsessed. We're on Twitter at scoob obsessed. You know, of course, our website, www.skubobsessed. obsessed. So thank you. And, uh, and if we haven't talked about the fan map in a while. Um, you know, go to the website uh scuba obsessed fans will have a link and you can put your pin in the fan map so you can show everybody where you're listening from and we've you know we'd, we'd love to eventually get somebody from each country each province state or uh, area from within those countries uh in that fan map well you have anything you want to plug kevin before we get on out of here
1: well i want to encourage all of our listeners to uh, use our local dive shops we all like to get those deals online, but those deals online aren't going to, aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, uh, keep on using your local uh, uh, libraries. And anytime you get a chance to uh, give them a little bit of money in the local millages and whatnot, do what you can for them. Uh, so, those are my plugs for the evening here. And I want to apologize to our listeners. I'm really trying to scramble to have those numbers for the pizzazz I mentioned earlier. I know I've seen them online, I'm going through both of my resources here, and I'm not seeing them. So I uh, apologize. I know the numbers were – I'm pretty sure they were on MSRA's page at one time. But for some reason or another, they have been taken down. So I'll take a look at what's going on with that.
0: Yeah, it's super secret now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I thought they were up here. I may have saw them someplace else. I know I was pretty good about sharing what they have. So. Yeah.
0: And then, you know, like, like anything, they've, they run into the same things we do where uh, – you know, human beings maintain the website and things get moved around and, uh, stuff that was there can suddenly not be there. So, uh, I think it is that time of the show. Are you ready? Bring it on. Okay. And, um, supposedly this, it has the idea that this is about me, but I don't remember the event. Maybe it will come to me as, as we go through this, but it said, uh, Diver Darren once lived on a quiet, rural highway, but as time went by, the traffic slowly built up and eventually got so heavy and so fast his free-range chickens were being run over at a rate of three to six a week. So Diver Darren called the local police station to complain. You've got to do something about all these people driving so fast and killing all my chickens, he said to the local police officer. Well, what do you want me to do, asked the policeman. I don't care, just do something about those crazy drivers. So next day, the policeman had the council erect a sign that said school crossing. Three days later, Diver Darren called the policeman and said, "You've got to do something about these drivers. There's, the school crossing sign seems to make them go even faster." So again, they put up a new sign. It said, "Slow, children at play." They really sped up then. So Diver Darren called and said, "Your signs are no good. Can I put up my own sign?" In order to get Diver Darren off his back, the policeman said, "Sure, put up your own sign." The phone calls the police station stopped, but curiously, got the better of the officer. So he called Diver Darren. How's the problem with the speeding drivers? Did you put up your sign? Oh, I sure did. Not one chicken has been killed. The policeman was really curious, so he thought he'd better go out and take a look at the sign. He thought the sign may be something the police could use elsewhere to slow drivers down. So he drove to driver Darren's house, uh, and then here's the sign that he observed. Nudist colony, slow down and watch for chicks.
1: <laughs> okay. All right. If that works.
0: I, I don't remember putting up that sign, but uh, I have to say I haven't had any chickens run over in quite a while.
1: <laughs> that would work.
0: Yeah. So, on that note, go out there and get wet.
1: Stay safe and have a good time doing it.